The Other Side podcast mission is to discuss important cultural and social issues relating to race, culture, gender, and equality. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Other Side podcast. I'm Scott Kirk here with Lucas Sullivan, and today we will be talking to Seth Josephson. Thanks for joining us, Seth. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So sometimes we do episodes where we kind of highlight certain religions. And so we wanted to focus this episode on Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And my understanding is you're second generation. That's right. So just real quick for people who don't really know a lot about Buddhism, can you just kind of give us the quick general rundown of? Sure. So the Buddha is a historical figure who is alive about 2,500 years ago. And he started a movement to practice waking up. The Buddha literally means the awakened one. And so he taught practices to find peace, compassion, and to wake up to life as it really is. And so Buddhism isn't, it's sometimes people say it is or isn't a religion because there is no God necessary. Some Mm -hmm. people are Buddhists and have an idea of God, some don't. There's an idea that the the self is made up of a lot of different parts. There's no single essence, like a soul that's universal. Okay. So in other ways, it can be in some ways a rational practice, but it's also a spiritual practice that tries to connect with how we live our lives, how we build community together. And so the Buddhist tradition started with the Buddha, and then it's evolved. It's incorporated a lot of different practices, different philosophies. So there's uh, numerous different traditions in the world. And then in the last century or so, it's also started to spread to you know North America, Europe, elsewhere. And so then I guess I'm, as a second generation Buddhist, I'm part of that story of new movements of people who are finding inspiration from the practice and continuing it in a new form. So what you're saying is you could be Catholic, Jewish, whatever, and still practice some of the core principles of Buddha and Buddhism and and implement those Mm -hmm. into your life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the Abrahamic religions like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, there's this idea that, you know, you should have no other gods. You know, in Buddhism, there's nothing equivalent to that. So the Buddha said, here's some really powerful teachings. Take them, try them out, find what's useful. So it doesn't mean that you have to leave behind your ancestral tradition to practice them. Now, from a Christian perspective, someone might say, oh, this is incompatible or whatever. But from a Buddhist perspective, there's nothing to prohibit you from being a Buddhist Christian. And there's plenty of them. There's a group in Columbus even that is the Buddhist Christian Mother Church, and they practice a combination of those traditions. And I myself, I have partly a Jewish background. So I do some of the Jewish traditions a little bit as well, even though it's not my religious center, but it's part of my cultural traditions. And I feel like there's nothing in nothing in the Buddhist tradition that says you can't, you know, have a moment where you light candles and say a prayer or whatever. So that's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Jewish background that other religions sometimes attack mm. and Jews sometimes feel like they're under constant attack. But Buddhism is really about having a peacefulness, right? Mm, absolutely. So you, what are some of the things that you like the most about each of those different, you know, kind of mindsets mm. or those core values that you just mentioned? Within Buddhism? In the Jewish side. Yeah. How do you mix those for you? How does it work yeah. for you? Well, for me, I like the, the idea in the Jewish tradition that you're connecting to this ancestral past you know, to think like my forefathers uh, thousands of years ago did this thing or something like that. So there's something there. And I think all of us can get some benefit if we know our our traditions and our family to go back 
and try to investigate them. But what I think one thing that I really appreciate about the Buddhist tradition is that it's universal. It doesn't say, you know, this is only for this group of people, you know, only for Jews or whatever. It can be a message that can be shared with all. And, and to me, it really builds the foundations for the values that I have. Care for the world, for other humans, but also for the environment, for animals, being present in the moment, just trying to enjoy life as it unfolds, practicing freedom, you know, whatever that means to us, but specifically finding our path, our truth, and knowing that it's not going to be the same one person to the next, but to practice that, get in touch with that. Those are all Buddhist principles as I understand it. And I think that's all compatible with Judaism. But for me, that's not my major concern, like whether the Jewish Orthodoxy would approve of what I do. I just connect with some of those traditions, especially on a family level. And then I practice meditation with my community. It's called a Sangha. A community of people, Buddhists that get together. We do our meditation. We we do our sharing and and build community that way. Okay. You mentioned some other Buddhists in, in the community, and I, I think yeah. I read somewhere that the organization you you started a group, the Buddhist Network of Central Ohio, mm-hmm. and I think I read somewhere that you said partly because the community was fractured. Mm. And I was just wondering. What did you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think that Buddhism is really diverse and it comes from a lot of different sources. So there's a lot of communities here, small groups that get together and they practice their tradition, but they don't really know about what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a real need for some togetherness on uh, sharing resources, sharing philosophies, trying to understand each other. And although there's never really been a war of religions per se in Buddhism, there's there can be like misunderstandings about the other traditions. Mm-hmm. And and so the idea with the Buddhist network is, in part anyways, to start to build a conversation among the different traditions. And also there's there's some cultural divides there too. You know, there's the English language, maybe convert Buddhists or second generation Buddhists like myself. And then there's, there's a lot of folks that are here in Columbus from, like there's a large Lao population here who many of them don't speak English. They're refugee mainly population. So they have some large temples here in Columbus, but they don't always like have a network to connect with the other people here here. And so trying to do, a, and that's an ongoing project for the Buddhist Network, but to try to do some outreach to, you know, the Vietnamese community here, the Chinese community here, the Lao community or whatever it is, and build some sense of solidarity and community with the English language majority groups. Do a favor for me. So there's some terms that I think often get kicked around in in American culture that have origins in the Buddhist religion. And I think people a lot of times use these terms and don't even really know what they mean. So just real quick, explain karma. Mm. Buddha, which you you just explained, Nirvana. What do those terms actually mean? And do they mean what commonly people associate with those words? Yeah, I think that there's definitely a translation that's happened or transformation. Some of those terms have adapted in our English environment. But karma, for example, so the way I understand that is it's basically the the law of cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So literally, karma means action. This comes from a word that means action. So in the Buddhist time, there was a lot of movements, actually, not just Buddhism, but who were trying to think through what are the consequences of our actions. And some people think of it as a kind of predestination, but the Buddha actually taught that we can always change our karma at any time by changing our behaviors and our actions. And so it's a little bit of, it's just in a way, I think, 
an observation that, you know, if I do harm to the world, then there's going to be something that will come back to me. If I lie to my loved one, then there's going to be mistrust, you know, and that's going to come back and harm me. And so that's the basic principle of karma. And it can be positive as well. You know, if you do beneficial things, if you're kind, then you'll tend to have kindness come back. So the way I understand it is it was a theory at that time that people were exploring. What is the nature of cause and effect, the actions that we do? How do they come back to us? And there's not just one understanding of that, but the basic principle is that, you know, we'll reap what we sow, which is something that we see in the other traditions. The Buddha, the awakened one, you know, the one who sees the world as it is and and can teach. And in the tradition that I practice, which is the Zen tradition, there's this idea that Buddha nature is our fundamental nature. So our work is to get back to that source that's in us at all times. It's that spaciousness that we can return to when we don't have all those distractions, that fundamental nature of awakening where we see things as they are without prejudgment, without assumptions, just receiving things as they come to us with peace, with love. Is the little figurine, the little mm. ball guy, that is that is that an actual... Uh, no, seriously, because when you when you say Buddha, that's right. what I think about. Yes. Is that actually true? Or well, yes that... and no. So a lot of the time people think of the chubby, happy Buddha, right? That's a figure that develops in China later on. Technically, it's more of a bodhisattva, which is, won't get into the two details here, but it's basically like, a, in a way, a saint-like figure. So it's an exemplary person. Sometimes that chubby, happy Buddha can represent Maitreya, the friend, which is the Buddha-to-be, the next Buddha that's on the way in the future at some point. But the historical Buddha who lived 2,500 years ago, he, you know, is usually depicted as a more trim guy in this this cross-legged position, a little bun on his head often. So that's the image that we usually use as a way to inspire our practice. Do you you have one of these little Buddhas in your house? Yeah. I do not, but I was was share some people, do you go to some places and they have them. I was in a restaurant the other day. It was just a traditional like burger joint. Like, is that offensive? The owners owners had a little chubby Buddha back behind the counter. Is that offensive? You know, what I think is, it's definitely offensive to some Buddhists because they feel like this is an object of veneration. So if it's it's mistreated, then they feel personal mistreatment. For me, I think of it as, well, if you have an image of the Buddha, are you living by the Buddhist principles? And if you are, awesome. You know, if you aren't, then that's offensive. And it doesn't have to be labeled Buddhism. It's not important to me that you call yourself a Buddhist, but are you living in nonviolence, for example? So at the burger joint, you know, it's good to know that one of the things the Buddha taught is compassion to animals. You know, so if you're selling meat and, and you've got eating, an image of the eating meat. and eating meat and you've got an image of the Buddha, to me, that's offensive. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, another, uh, another Lucas piece. is like, yeah, I, yeah. I, I get that, but I'm still going to sit down and eat my burger. But I get I get why. <laughs> I get why it might be offensive to people, especially if you practice it. I mean, another piece, too, is that the Buddha taught to not consume intoxicants, which is, you know, it's open to interpretation. But alcohol, if if alcohol being the basic one that was prevalent at the time that he was reacting to. So if somebody has images of the Buddha and they're, you know, it's at a bar or or something like that, that's that's insensitive, too. I mean, offensive, maybe that's a strong term, but it's insensitive because it shows that you're ignorant, basically. Like here you have an image of something and you're not aware at all of what that tradition is or what the source of, of the teachings are or so, the ethical piece Seth, there. Seth, you said you're a second generation mm-hmm. Buddhist. So was this something that was just put into you from the time you were born? So my parents were pretty typical in a way of a lot of American Buddhists that they their philosophy was 
you know, this is what we do, but you're free to choose whatever you want. So you chose to do it. Yeah. So, so did this save you? For, if you have a child and, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in, in a culture, today's culture or in, you know, it was like it's been like this for a while. But, you know, all the factors that go into school and, you know, other students and bullying and things like that. Did it help? Do you think it helped you? Did it help you deal with that? Did it help you deal with puberty? And did it, I mean, did you mm-hmm. feel like it, you know, because you mentioned it before, it's about returning to a center yeah. and trying to get back to your center do you think it helped you through those times i think it did i mean it gave me a a sense of values that i could connect with and i think my parents in a way were surprised that i was as interested in it as i was but for me it was a source of coming to know who i was you know and and where do i come from what what kind of resources are there for me as a child my parents are also you know children of the 60s and stuff so they're a little countercultural in some various ways so i knew i didn't quite fit into the mainstream but having the buddhist tradition to rest on i could say well actually there's this ancient tradition with all this knowledge and wisdom that I can go back to. And in the Buddhist world, we say that you take refuge in the Buddha, in the Dharma, in the Sangha. And so I think that's a useful way to frame it. It's like, here's this body of community and philosophy and practice that I can take refuge in when I need it. And as a child, especially as an adolescent, I definitely needed that, you know, struggling with identity and all the emotions that come in that period to get back to some core values like that my nature is good. You know, I have this Buddha nature. That compassion is one of the most important things that we can practice, that there's this wisdom that's possible, that it's it's possible to make sense of the world, to understand our place in it. All those things were important. Scott, Seth mentioned earlier, and this to me, this is one of the most fascinating parts of this lifestyle, religion, however you want it, is really being in the moment. And I feel like knowing you a little bit, you and I, we don't do this. And it sounds like a simple thing. Whereas Buddhism, it's if you being able to accept praise or being able to be self-absorbed in the moment and when someone's doing something for you, embracing that and not just quickly moving on to the next thing or, or just quickly moving on in general and letting yourself kind of let that moment washing over you. And like, I feel like, especially in, in journalism, this business, fast paced business, but even in your own life, a lot of us don't take that moment to just be in the moment and let the feelings come to you, not push them away, especially when people are trying to be nice to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And that is the fascinating part to me because it's hard to do. A lot of people say, I have trouble accepting compliments uh-huh. and uh, accepting praise. And they, you know, it makes them feel kind of queasy and embarrassed and they want to quickly move on from that. Yeah. And, and I feel like this way of thinking and this way of life could help maybe people deal with that. I want to be able to do that because I can't mm-hmm. do it right now. And it, it's a thing that when you say it out loud, it just kind of like, okay, that, that sounds good being in the moment. We've all heard that phrase. But when you really yeah. start to think about it and the principles in Buddhism that teach you how to do with that, it's kind of fascinating. Speaking of which, in a little bit here, Seth is going to teach us how to be more in mindfulness or what's the correct way to use the term to be more mindful or to practice mindfulness. Either way. Okay. I and I wanted to ask you a, another question because often you hear Buddhism is associated with meditation. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you specifically said mindfulness. Mm. Is there a difference between mindfulness and meditation? One way to think of it is that mindfulness is a style of meditation, but it's not the only kind of meditation. There's also like a visualization meditations where you recall something in your mind, you you visualize something that you're not in right now, but you're, you're 
bringing it to mind. There's also compassion meditations where you practice giving and receiving love to people that are close to you or people that you struggle with. Those are all powerful practices as well. But mindfulness is can, in a sense, be the core of all that or it can be a separate practice. But I think of it as basically non-judgmental present moment awareness. So that's something you don't have to sit down in your cross-legged posture and practice it for 20 minutes, although that can be great. You can also do that right now. You know, we can just find that right now that, that we're in contact with the world, that we're breathing, that this is our life that we're living in the moment. I mean, part of the idea of being in the moment is that this is where life takes place. You know, even if we're recalling something in the past or thinking about something in the future, that takes place here in this present moment. And so to be in contact with what's present is to really see things as they are, as they are arising for us, and ideally to enjoy that, to start to find that as an enjoyable experience. In your daily life, you don't actually like set aside 15 minutes to just sit quietly and practice mindfulness. You sort of do it on the go Well, I do both, actually. So I set aside usually 20 minutes most mornings to sit. Some of those are with my uh, sangha, my group. We have a morning meditation on Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. And that is a good practice for me that helps me to build that capacity to be mindful throughout my day. So if I take time to just rest in the morning, uh, rest in my body to notice all the emotions that are coming up, whether that's anxiousness about the day or something from yesterday that's still on my mind, and just let that settle a little bit, not push it away or or, you know, try to destroy those thoughts. Just notice those different thoughts and emotions that arise. 20 minutes is enough to start to see some of that settle and become a little more peaceful. And then I can get up off the cushion and go on with my life and carry some of that capacity with me throughout the day. So you mentioned a little bit ago about spreading and receiving love, even Mm -hmm. from those that you have conflict with. Yeah. What does that look like? Or what does that sound like or feel like? Yeah. So, I mean, there's this idea in Buddhism that love is immeasurable, that we can spread it to to all beings. Um, Maybe not right away, maybe not in this moment, but we can kind of open our heart out and spread that, maybe include all those beings in our heart. And so one base level practice is to imagine with each in-breath breathing in the suffering of someone and with each out-breath breathing out something like that will cool and, and heal them. Just a visualization like that, picturing the person in our mind, breathing in their pain, breathing out love mm-hmm. or, or care. I mean, that some people believe that will materially help them. I mean, that's a scientific question. Mm. I know that it helps me to have that practice so that then when I'm with that person again, I'm ready to be present with them, to be compassionate. So, you know, we start with the people that are easy for us to love and move gradually out. We can't always go right to that hardest person. You know, with all the things that are triggering people today, all the news that's so hard to hear that brings up a lot of memories for people about abuse and things right now. One thing I heard recently that I like is maybe we could start by, you don't have to start by wishing compassion to our abuser. That's maybe down the road, maybe never. But we could start by thinking of someone and wishing, you know, may they lose the ability to harm. Mm. You know, we could just practice in our mind, may this person lose this power to harm. And that actually is a compassionate thought because if someone is doing harm in the world, they're going to receive harm back, you know, the idea of karma. Sure. And they're usually in a state of suffering or a state of blindness in some way. So just a phrase like that, to think, to hold in our mind someone that's difficult with us and think, may this person see things as they are. May they find peace eventually. May they lose the ability to harm. That might start to open our capacity for love. We should also never forget that we are also object to love. You know, sometimes we want to be self-sacrificing and if I could only could suffer more and then that'll help others. But that's a misunderstanding as well. We have to include ourselves in that love. Imagine our ourselves. Maybe sometimes people say, well, imagine yourself as a child. What? How would you hold yourself? How would you 
care for yourself as a child. Maybe that's a way to visualize, to bring ourselves into compassion for whatever we're going through. Maybe we made some really horrible mistakes and we feel regret. But how would you hold a child who made a mistake and they feel that regret? Can you think of yourself in that way? So you should kind of connect with your childlike self and you're kind of holding your self as yes as a child so that's one way to do it you know that's a way that i think can be helpful because we don't when we usually anyways when we see a child do something wrong we recognize that they're still learning you know they're they're not yet fully formed and we put a lot on children we put a lot on children too so thinking of ourselves as a child that's just one way to maybe get in touch with the roots of what we're struggling Mm. with you know what we went through as a child or or the kind of care that we wish we had maybe that's just one way to think of it. But there's a lot of ways to uh, to get in touch with what we're struggling with and include ourselves in that immeasurable compassion, that immeasurable love that we can have. And some of that is to try to create good for others, but also we want to practice what's called equanimity, being okay with the way things are. And so one aspect of love is the unconditional part of unconditional love that it maybe can't change. Someone mm. that we love may not change. They may not find peace and happiness or they may not stop whatever they're struggling with ourselves even sometimes we can't change but to accept what is there right as it is that's part of the practice of love as well okay sweet well seth before we let you get out of here yeah. would you be willing to show some mindfulness exercises absolutely now just so we're clear like this is not hypnosis like so if anybody out there thinks that this is anywhere even close to that although this, i did this, see something somewhere when doing my research there mm-hmm. is something called trance uh-huh. that is part of i don't know if it means literally like you're putting people in a trance but i did see that right. sort of listed with some other yeah i think i think of that as hypnosis trance those are some things that like the trance is a bigger conversation maybe to have but that's something that also can be practiced but that's different than mindfulness meditation you know that's taking yourself out into a, another space in a sense but mindfulness is about being rooted in this present moment and where you are i'll lead a, a short meditation but no one needs to worry that they'll accidentally. So you're, I thought you were going to like get Lucas to give me his wallet. That's not, <laughs> not going to happen. Have you? How do people react to this? Like, what is the spectrum you've seen? Do people? Is it usually a happy process? Do are they sad? Do you see people cry? Do you see people shout out loud during it? Like, what are people usually like? Well, if you take if you have time to really get deep in it, which we don't have today, but if you have your group that can rest in in it in silence and in mindfulness for a longer period of time, a lot of different things come up for people. Most often I hear people feel calmer, but sometimes people will have anxieties that they've pushed away that start to come to the surface that they maybe need to address. You know, mm-hmm. some something something in the back of their mind that then once there isn't a distraction, it comes to the front of their mind and they need to work with that. So, so, so there's times where people need to get up off of the meditation cushion, walk around, release some of that energy. Mm-hmm. I've also seen people cry. And, you know, that's also, I think, because people have a lot of pain and suffering that, that they have in themselves that maybe will start to well up. And so it's always okay to, to get in touch with that and to release some of that tears. I'm also seeing people just burst into laughter, you know, can be great to be sitting in silence with somebody and then someone just <laughs> all of a sudden yeah, laughs right. and everybody's laughing. It's like, you know, sometimes the joy starts to well up in us and we can just feel so overwhelmed with that. We want to just shout out with, with joy. Okay. 
So all kinds of things are present, and, and that's part of the point. The point is that we want to be present with whatever is there. Okay. And if it's pain, then maybe we need to be with that pain for a little bit before it passes. If we are always pushing it down, it's going to come popping back up. But if we can be there, be present with it long enough for it to work itself through, sometimes that's helpful. But sometimes it isn't pain. It doesn't have to be painful at all. Okay. Well, right. I'm ready. We're going to give ready? over control to Seth here. Yes. He's going to put us at ease. Yes. Okay. Or make us cry and laugh. <laughs> if I do either Something one of those, if I do there. either one of those, I'll be happy. All right. So let's just find ourselves wherever we are. You might be listening to this driving or doing your dishes or walking, or you might have the time to just sit or lie down and rest. So wherever you are, just notice what you're engaged in where you are. And regardless of what you're doing, if you're listening to this, and I know that you're alive. So the one way to get in touch with that life force is with the breath. Breathing in and breathing out. And that continues, that in-breath and that out-breath is always there whenever we're alive. We might forget about it, but we always have that to come into contact with ourselves. So I invite you to, in an in-breath, extend the spine a little bit, stretch out your back, pull your shoulders back, Fill your body with air and release on an out-breath. The body and the mind are connected. They rely on each other. So by taking care of our bodies, extending it, we open our mind a little bit wider too. And then on an out-breath, I invite you to come in contact with whatever you're touching at the moment. Notice where your body makes contact with the world. The world is a vast place, and we have our part of it. And so we meet it right here, maybe though. The world holding us up on the floor, under our feet, under our seat, maybe on our back, maybe our hands on the steering wheel or in the dishes. Wherever it is, rest and notice that point of contact. So on an in-breath, Take in a little piece of the world, little pieces that enters into our body on our in-breath. And on the out-breath, we release it, release a little part of ourself out into the world. So the breath is a gate, opens one way, the door swings the other way. It's the gate to which we encounter the world, our place in it. Knowing that we are alive, knowing that this is our one life to live, our life in this day, our one day to live right now, our one minute to live. We also know we have an opportunity to live that day in awareness, in joy. So I invite you to take a moment to smile, to practice enjoyment. Even if you have suffering, you can still also have joy alongside that suffering. So take a moment to smile. Now I'll invite a small bell, and I invite you to take three breaths, smiling in contact with the world, knowing that you're alive. Thank you. Thank you. How do you feel? 
so I was really trying to come in contact with the world, but the thought that came into my head was just a happy thought that I had experienced recently. Uh-huh. Is that what it's supposed to be? It can be. Or am I supposed to be happy that the room air is comfortable or that I'm sitting here with people who I feel are in a loving place with me? Like, Yeah, all those things are possible. We have so many opportunities to be happy. You know, it might be something in our life that we remember that we can recall in the mind or just appreciate that, hey, I'm not struggling to find food or sustenance at the moment. Could be as basic as I'm not. My leg isn't broken at the moment or the community that we have. Any of those things can be opportunities for us to get a little enjoyment. Mm. Because for me, the practice of mindfulness is is a practice of being present with what is in the present moment, in the world that we live, this particular world, not some fantasy world, but this real messy world that we live in, but also to increase our capacity to enjoy that. Because fundamentally, what else is there to do with life than to try to find a little more enjoyment? And I think naturally, the more that we enjoy life, the more that we'll spread that enjoyment to others and benefit others Mm. and be a little more willing to help others, which is so important today. Yes, I agree. Wow, this has been great. I learned a lot. Yeah, where can people go to get more information about this and locally, you know, can you kind of give out your information? Yes. about where? So check out BuddhismCentralOhio.org. That has a list of all the local groups and information about the Buddhist network. And then I practice with Mud Lotus Sangha, which meets in Clintonville. And the information is on there as well. Or you can search on Facebook for Mud Lotus Sangha. Sangha is S-A-N-G-H-A. And that group is open to the public? And that's open to the public. Anybody can drop in. And I co-facilitate it with uh, Sarah Provenzali, a good friend of mine. And so we take turns just opening that space up to people. And people can bring whatever is, is alive and them into that. What days are you doing that? It's three mornings a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday at 8 a.m. And then two Sundays, the second and fourth Sunday. Okay. And that's at a studio in Clintonville, which I'm also part of called It It Looks Like It's Open, which is a community art studio in South Clintonville. So people could check that out too. Awesome. Thank you, Seth. Thanks so much for coming in. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. And hopefully somebody out there will hear this and, you know, be able to bring a little mindfulness into their life. So yeah, that'd be great. Also, I want to we'll have a video of this session that we just did with Seth up on our social media accounts. So if you'd like to see what it looks like and not just hear it, you can always check those out. I'm peaceful right now. I really am. It's it was interesting. I wish we had more. We could just stay in that moment for a little longer. That was nice. I know. You'll have to come back. I'd be happy to. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for tuning in and checking out another episode of the Other Side Podcast. Don't forget, you can always reach us on our social media accounts, on our Facebook group and our Twitter page. We always like to hear from our listeners. You can always send us questions or suggestions for our shows or go in there just to find more content. So until the next time, try to see things from the other side. Thanks. Thanks.